the people, the maroon communities living in Rocopondo, that they did not know what information they should believe. Because there were so many things being said, and nobody was actually taking the time to go to these communities, people whose lives and livelihoods are at stake, because a lot of those people actually are dependent on the reservoir, and no one was actually taking the time to go to these communities and explain to them what, what was actually happening. And so I spoke to someone who, lived in, who lives in a village in that community, a maroon woman. And, you know, one of the things that really stayed with me from that interview was the sheer frustration in her voice. The fact that there was potentially something so dangerous and they were basically left on their own and nobody cared enough to explain to them what was going on. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Caribbean Climate Calabash podcast. Today I have with me uh, the phenomenal Suriname journalist Stephanie Lauchman. She's one of our COP28 fellows and she's also a climate justice fellow. Um, and today we'll be discussing some of the stories that Stephanie has covered um, during her time with us at Climate Tracker. But also, um, you know, one, one, interest, one very interesting collaborative um, piece of story that she did with some other fellows um, that I think is a very, very interesting and, and you know, pertinent um, conversation around climate change. So we're looking forward to this conversation today. Thank you again, Stephanie, for join, joining us. Um, it's my pleasure. I want to start off with um, your, your, your time with the, the Climate Justice Fellowship. Those were the first set of stories that you worked on. Yes. Um, um, so can we go a bit into some of those? I see that you, one of them was, well, this is COP28, but it was about, the, the, well, this one is about oil and gas. Um, yeah. So yeah, can we can we talk a bit about that those initial stories before COP26, just so we can get an idea of what, um, where 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 you generally report and you know how that fell how that um fell into the the, the COP28 stories, um, yeah. Yeah. So definitely, um, let me say hi to everybody who's tuning in to listen to this podcast, um. Definitely before there was COP28 and the stories that I produced um, as a part of the COP28 fellowship, there was the Caribbean Climate Justice Fellowship. And, you know, it's actually due to the Caribbean Climate Justice Fellowship that I really got into or that I had a platform where I could definitely focus on climate and environment. Um, because before that, I wasn't really focusing specifically on climate environment. So the fellowship definitely gave me the means and the resources to really dive deep into storytelling when it comes to climate justice. And, you know, one of the recurring themes during the six stories that I produced as a part of the fellowship has definitely been indigenous and maroon communities. 
the very first story I produced was about cyanide potential cyanide contamination in the Brocopundo Reservoir, which is the largest uh, reservoir in Suriname. And, you know, there were a lot of rumors in Suriname at the time that the reservoir was possibly contaminated with cyanide due to cyanide being used in the illegal gold mining, the small scale, which is an uh, illegal sector, the gold mining sector. And, you know, there was so much information coming into the communities. But one thing that really kind of triggered me to want to write the story was the fact that the people, the maroon communities living in Rocopondo, that they did not know what information they should believe. Because there were so many things being said, and nobody was actually taking the time to go to these communities, people whose lives and livelihoods are at stake. Because a lot of those people actually are dependent on the reservoir. And no one was actually taking the time to go to these communities and explain to them what, what was actually happening. And so I spoke to someone who, lived in, who lives in a village in that community, a maroon woman. And, you know, one of the things that really stayed with me from that interview was the sheer frustration in her voice. The fact that there was potentially something so dangerous and they were basically left on their own and nobody cared enough to explain to them what was going on. And I also spoke to, of course, experts who explained what the dangers of cyanide are. And, you know, it turned out to be one of the, the my favorite articles I've ever written. And I actually recently also spoke to the Minister of um, Environment to ask about an update in regards to the cyanide contamination. And he actually explained that the rumors that were there, um, which basically said that the reservoir was contaminated with high concentrations of cyanide, that those rumors were wrong. But it is a fact that cyanide is being used in the small-scale gold mining um, activities. So um, even though the, the minister indicates that there is no cyanide contamination in the reservoir. The use of cyanide is still very dangerous. So um, I think that's definitely one of the most interesting stories I did. Oh, yeah. And you also touched upon the oil and gas industry. Indeed, I also did a story um, regarding the oil and gas industry. And my motivation for wanting to do that story is because I feel like it's easy as Surinamese people to have tunnel vision right now at the prox prospects of the, the upcoming offshore oil industry and all of the money that we're going to make. But I felt like there was this big elephant in the room that nobody was talking about, which is the fact that oil activities can have a lasting dangerous impact on the clim on climate and our environment. So, you know, I felt like it was also important for people to be very fair and to look at all possibilities. And that's the reason why I wrote that story. And um, I really wanted to look at what the possible effects of the, or the offshore oil 
activities could be on the environment. Yeah, that's and very especially how it can impact, you know, those vulnerable communities. Yeah, yeah, the, that's very interesting, that topic as well, you know, and Suriname, you know, where, where you are being in a very um, interesting position relating to that industry right now, um, because a lot of it, you know, especially right now as journalists, the approach that we have to take is, is to try to be as level as possible, like you said, um, from all angles, because... You know, and it was this is similar to a previous conversation I had with um, Dr. Baldia Singh in in um, from from Trinidad. He was at he was um, ahead of the the oil and gas of an oil and gas company in Trinidad for a long time, um, but he eventually started to become more environmentally conscious and and decided to put in certain measures to that were pro environment. You know, so the, but the conversation around oil and gas is very is 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 very difficult because, like you said, it affects the environment. But at the same time, and you know, it's like but at the same time, with countries like Suriname, where there is this possibility of benefit, financial benefit, you know, we have to be level yeah. about that as well and just say yes, there is that possibility, and yes, it still does affect the environment. Like all these things can be true at the same time. And I think yeah. as journalists, it's important for us to bring these things together in one place so that when we're making the decision about how we do it, all these things, we're not being hypocritical about, you know, what what is and what isn't. So I think that's 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 what we got from, you know, in your stories on it. And you did a really great job with that. Um, Thank you so much. So the I guess the next question um, and this we might, this will probably go into the collaborative piece a little bit um, before we touch more on COP28. Um, is you mentioned that you, when you just started, um, I mean, when you did the, the, the climate justice was your, was your first opportunity to kind of dive deep into, um, you know, the environment, environmental reporting and uh, climate change and climate justice. Um, I know we we often as journalists we might discuss the, the the how the change affects us in terms of how the new information sh shifts our perspectives and that kind of thing um but we may not talk enough about the mental health aspect of it and how we deal with um the things that we learn and the fact that we do have to report um on a lot of these um you know calamities and crises and how we kind of deal with and synthesize so many stress that comes from it. Um, so I kind of want to touch on how you dealt with that a little bit. And then from there, go into the subject of mental health and climate change and the stories yeah. that, that you guys kind of covered. Yeah. Well, you know, as I said, one of the recurring themes of, you know, most of my stories was looking at, you know, indigenous and maroon communities. And, you know, before I get to the collaborative story, I want to talk about a story I did on basically the effects of climate change on indigenous communities, where I actually spoke to um, a young man from Apatina. Apatina is a indigenous, Wayana indigenous village. Um, Wayanas are, you know, a type of indigenous peoples living mostly in Suriname, Brazil, and French Guyana. 
And so the Surinamese Huayana indigenous people live in the deep south of um, Suriname. The area is called the Lawa area. And there are, you know, different Huayana villages and one of them is Apatina. And so he's from Apatina. And he was explaining to me that, you know, the, of course we know that the effects of climate change that climate change has very severe effects on the indigenous communities because they're so vulnerable. But I really wanted to put it into context and to give people an overview of like how it is day to day for indigenous peoples in those communities that are being affected. And um, for the indigenous and the maroon communities, Kasafa, which is also known as Yuka in some countries, it's like their main source of food. It's like their the most important crop. And you know, he was telling me that the last years there have been so many instances where the harvest has failed. Of course, this has severe effects on their food security, and they're actually seeing and experiencing that they have less and less access to those food sources. And the thing with cassava is it, it goes a bit, it's, it's not just a food source, it's actually also traditionally, traditionally linked because cassava and yuca, uh, when it comes to, to the indigenous peoples, it's used to make kasiri. Kasiri is an indigenous alcoholic beverage and it's, it's um, used during like very important days and stuff like that. And they also use the cassava or the yuca to make cassava bread, which is literally their daily bread that they consume. So because, you know, because due to the extreme dry weather, one part of the year, which causes the ground to become infertile. And then on the other hand, you have months where it rains so much that the grounds flood. So it's basically coming from both sides. The harvest has failed many times. So even their, you know, traditional food and beverage in this case that, you know, they make, it's being threatened. And one thing that I really like though was that he explained that the Wayana people, even if they have um, just a little bit of food, because they're such, you know, such a family-oriented community, they share it with each other. And one of the other things he explained to me, we know um, Wayana people, well, not just the Wayana people, all indigenous and maroon communities are very connected to the land that they live on. They're connected to the forest. They have lived as one with the forest for centuries. And of course, we know that 90% of world's biodiversity is in indigenous communities. So for instance, when it comes to um, the indigenous peoples they were used to like hearing certain insects and then they would know hey the rainy season is about to start but because of the changing weather weather patterns those traditional knowledge that was passed down from their ancestors isn't applicable anymore so we're seeing that the effects of climate change is having is having a severe effect on them. And not only their food security, but also their 
you know, traditional knowledge is being threatened. And we know how much that means to indigenous peoples. So when I did that article, that also kind of formed the basis to want to look at the mental health aspect. Of course, with my amazing collaborators in this, um, Candace and Samuel, so we did look at the effect of climate change on mental health of these communities. And I think it's so important that we did that because when it comes to the climate change conversation, oftentimes the first thing we think about is like the flooding and the extreme heat, you know, the dryness, but we don't easily delve deeper and look at the ripple effects of all of, all of those weather, pat weather patterns that exist. And in reality, it does have an effect on the mental health. And I think if you read the story, um, I spoke to one person in Suriname, one indigenous person who shared her experience. Candace spoke to like a community in her country, shared their experience. And then we have Samuel, who spoke to um, traditional authority. So it's, it's so important that I think we did that because now, you know, we're kind of shining a light on the mental health aspect. And actually also it can serve as a call to action, to raise awareness about the fact that yes, mental health can be severely affected by climate change. Yeah, very much agreed. And, um, you know, it plays into our jobs too as journalists. Um, I wanted to ask you because, you know, as I was saying earlier too, it's like, it's, you know, not, not only does it affect us and the people that we're, it also affects the people that we're, you know, covering their stories. Um, but the people who are, who are going to read those stories, the people who we're trying to illuminate and share these things with the audience, I think they sometimes struggle, um, which, gives an additional struggle to our it kind of gives an additional struggle to our job because they are um you know it's it's difficult for them to to do a similar processing of what's going on and so we have to try to find a language and then also kind of help them to understand that yes these things are going on there are these crises but you know we have to we have to address them. We have to act on them. Like you said, there has to be call to actions. Um, and we, I mean, yes, we, there might be some fear attached and the, the, the concept of, you know, the climate changing and things, you know, certain, like you said, certain knowledge, like traditional knowledge, like kind of not standing up to the way things are changing, way, ways of life are being threatened. The environment yeah. is changing in such an extreme way that, you know, we we are having to kind of engage people in the conversation that in in maybe a decade or so things might be radically different. The world might be radically different, and that's a difficult thing for some people to absorb. Um, how do you deal with um, translating some of that while also kind of not trying to spoon feed audience, but help them? You know, because it is a heavy yeah. kind of conversation. Yeah. You know, as a journalist, one of the most important, if not the most important thing to me is to always tell stories that are fact-based. 
And, you know, I think, especially when it comes to climate and environment, there are so many stories that are not being told. For instance, and I'm going to go a bit into my COP experience, experience, one of the most important things to me during COP was translating everything that was happening to my community back at home in Suriname. Because these big decisions are, you know, are happening. People are negotiating a loss and damage fund, conversation regarding phase out of fossil fuels. But the question is, what does that mean for the communities back home? And that's why in most of my stories, I always try to give a voice or give a platform to whether it's one person or whether it's a community to share their stories. Communities who otherwise don't easily get the opportunity to do so because everybody's story that deserves to be told. And it's up to the reader to you know, make their own conclusion and to decide how they feel about that story. But I definitely think that we as journalists, of course, have to find kind of a balance between absolutely 100% being fact-based, but on the other hand, also making sure that, you know, we kind of fulfill all our obligation by telling stories that otherwise, you know, people don't get the opportunity to tell. Yeah, I fully agree. And, um, you know, as you mentioned, COP28, um, we, should, we should probably just get right into that because it's like you said, um, translating some of those large conversations um you know we say that we we say that you know we talk about it amongst ourselves as journalists and how difficult it is but i think you know it's so important and i mean people might not people readers people who consume the stories they might not um they might not know but yeah so i mean i mean how was that experience going there to the conference? And um, I know it's all the way across the world in a sense. Um, it's a new place. It's huge, I'm sure, these pavilions, there's so much going on. Um, how did you manage for one? And what were some of the, the things that you felt were um, important to kind of for your community or for your country to kind of, you know, look look into? Yeah. So um, in general, COP was a very interesting experience. It was my first COP. And, you know, as you mentioned, you're in, in like another city. There are so many people. And if I'm not mistaken, this was like the largest COP with the most participants. So um, it kind of was like a crash course in investigative journalism for me because you kind of have to figure out what negotiations are happening and everything is changing so quickly. Like one second, you can have this type of language and then just in an hour, everything has changed. So it was definitely, you know, an interesting experience. I'm so thankful that I got to be a part of it. I'm so thankful that, you know, I got to represent Suriname and be there as a Surinamese journalist, be there on the ground and, you know, have the opportunity to report back to my, my country, my community. Um, I definitely enjoyed the experience. I learned so much 
And to answer your question, one of the most important negotiations I was following was Article 6 of the Paris Agreement. Because before COP started, I had a interview with the Minister of Environment. And so basically, Suriname is gearing up to sell carbon credits under Article 6 of the Paris Agreement. And the minister had indicated that during COP, the, the Surinamese delegation would really be focusing on that. So, um, of course, I really wanted to follow those negotiations. And the article I produced was um, Suriname selling carbon credits. Will it be a rescue, a rescue rope or a noose for indigenous peoples? Because, of course, you know, I've spoken to different indigenous representatives and different communities, not only in relation to carbon credit sales, but also other, you know, important conversations. And a, a, a trend has always been that they indicate that they don't feel like they sufficiently get to be a part of the decision-making process. And, you know, that they would like to see more involvement from indigenous peoples in those important conversation, conversations. And the indigenous and the maroon people that I spoke to for my article, they had indicated that when it comes to specifically the carbon credit sale, that they don't feel like they were sufficiently consulted and they were sufficiently a part of the process. So I definitely wanted to like shine a light on that of course, yeah. looking at, you know, what the minister says. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. I was, I was just going to interrupt for a second to ask. Um, yeah. If, if, do you think, I mean, because it seems like it might be a history of that. We have a history of that here in Jamaica, the indigenous people just mm -hmm. kind of not being heard and in a way not being yeah. considered. Um, Candice spoke when we spoke um when 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 in in her podcast episode about the um about the fact that the the there is this there is also this policy here regarding indigenous people that has not been ratified and because of that they it they are while they are recognized um they, they are not their rights aren't as as prominent in a sense as I guess as they need to be. So I think maybe you know there is a history of this in in, in countries like ours where there are indigenous people um, where the government doesn't consult them. Is that do you think that that's something that um, you've observed? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know when it comes to for instance legis legislation in Suriname, one of the, the biggest problems for indigenous peoples is the fact that there are no legally recognized land rights yet even though the inter-american court of human rights has you know judged that Suriname, the government must grant indigenous peoples land rights and i i think that you know that's kind of the hurtful thing if i listen to indigenous communities that's a hurtful thing because so many you know, decisions are being taken, selling carbon credits, for instance. So many activities are happening that are destroying indigenous communities, indigenous lands. 
And, you know, on the other hand, indigenous peoples are fighting so many years already for their land rights and, you know, they haven't been granted their land rights yet. So I definitely think, you know, it's something we see in the Caribbean that indigenous peoples, one, do not have full access to their human rights because mostly these communities, they have a lot of issues that they're facing. For instance, in Suriname, a lot of the rivers are being contaminated by mercury use. You know, we have the gold dredges in those communities. So they feel like they don't have access to their full human rights. And then on the other hand, also, they don't have their land rights yet. And it's something that, you know, and this is a bit the intersectionality between land rights and protecting the environment. They feel like they are the ones who can protect their environment the best. And I mean, that's not unsubstantiated because 90% of world's biodiversity is in indigenous communities. So you have indigenous communities saying, hey, give our, us our land rights because we don't have those yet. And we have to, we, we are the ones experiencing the way that our community is being destroyed. So give us our land rights so that we can protect our community better. I think that's, you know, the main message from all of the interviews that I've done with indigenous communities. That's one of the main messages that I hear. Yeah, yeah, that's understandable. And, you know, there, there is truth to that because they have been doing, they have been protecting these environments for for years, you know, but sometimes before, not sometimes before these, before these nations existed as states and, and this, this kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, but I, well, I kind of wanted to, you know, wrap up a little bit. Um, I had one final question, yeah. which is, is kind of about the outcome, you know, now that COP28 is over, <clears throat> you know, the oil and gas and carbon credits discussions um, that you were kind of interested in while you were there. Um, what do you think the end of it was? Or what did, What do you think the final analysis is um, now that you're home and able to kind of look at, you know, it the, the finishing, um, the, fin the end of it and, and what it means going forward? Because I know you spoke on it a bit in your, in your COP28 episode, um, but you were there at the yeah. time. So um, just touch on a little bit um what what the end what you think of yeah. um the end yeah yeah one of the interesting things that i took my my interesting takeaways from cop and of i'm solely gonna focus on like the communities the caribbean um it was very interesting to see how Suriname and guyana were maneuvering through the cop conversation because of course we know Guyana is already, you know, busy with its oil exploitation and Suriname is gearing up to do that. So it was kind of interesting to see what stance Suriname and Guyana were going to take. And I actually went to a panel discussion organized in the Guyana Pavilion and, you know, the president as well as the vice president were very clear in, you know, their opinion that even though Guyana is gearing up, to, well, not gearing up, even though Guyana is, you know, exploiting its oil and gas um, industry, that the country is still, you know, one of the countries that contributes least to climate change, and that, you know, it shouldn't be countries like Guyana and Suriname 
who are held mostly with their feet to the fire, but it's the industrialized countries that are com um, contributing the most to climate change that should be held to the fire first. And I think Suriname, if I listen to the speech of the president, I think Suriname kind of has the same opinion. Um, when it comes to the Article 6, uh, Article 6 of the Paris Agreement, to my understanding, there wasn't really a lot of progress in terms of what they wanted to achieve, but Suriname does have the opportunity, uh, uh, yeah, the opportunity to sell carbon credits under Article 6.2, so that is a possibility. We can already do it. I did speak to the, the minister as I indicated earlier in the conversation, and he said that probably, you know, in the first six months of this year, Suriname will be selling the carbon credits. But, however, he wasn't able to explain to me or to indicate yet how much percentage or what the percentage will be that will be shared with indigenous and maroon communities, which is, of course, the benefit sharing. And, you know, for me, I think that's still very important to know, especially in... The, especially considering the fact that they are in the final stages of the conversation with um, regards to selling carbon credits, I think it should be clear by now what percentage will go to benefit sharing. Yeah, thank you for that. And I think, um, yeah, to add to your point, you know, it's, we, you know, our regions contribute so little, but also if, you know, if, if we're being logical and we compare, um, you know, more developed countries or, 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 or less developed countries, um, they, they really are less developed. So we have so many natural resources still that even if we do produce what, what's, you know, many of the, many of the islands, what they do produce is offset yeah. by the natural resources that yeah. they, they do have. So, um, you know, it really shouldn't be a conversation where, like you said, we are, our feet are more held to the fire. But uh, thank you again, um, Stephanie, for joining us today and for sharing your perspective and your stories. Um, thank you for your, your participation in the COP26 journey. I know that was hectic. Um, and thank you guys for listening, for tuning in to the, 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 Carib the Caribbean Climate Calabash podcast. Um, if you want to check out Stephanie's stories and the stories of our other fellows, you can log on to climatetrackercaribbean.org. You can find our podcast on YouTube here, obviously, if you're watching it, but you can also subscribe on Apple and Spotify um, music. Thank you again. Um, goodbye. Take care, Stephanie. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much for having me. Goodbye.